Welcome back to the Chartwell Chronicles. I'm Colin Davis. Hi, I'm Brittany Atkinson. And just a reminder that uh, Chartwell Law is more than just New Jersey workers' compensation. We have 38 different state and states and jurisdictions in 29 different offices. And you can get all this information on chartwelllaw.com. And we're back this month for our uh, New Jersey-centric uh, comp podcast. But uh, as we mentioned a, a couple months ago, we we're broadening to the other jurisdictions. And uh, that's coming out bi-monthly. So pay attention for that as well, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, because we'll have a lot of good content but uh, we're bringing a pretty fun topic in today that it's a it's a niche topic, but it should be pretty fun. What do you think, Britt? I mean, I don't know if I would call it fun, but, uh, you know, it's definitely an interesting topic. We are going to talk about dependency claims um, and what that really means. Um, we'll talk about who is a dependent. We'll talk about different examples of when um, dependency claims can be successful and when they can't be successful. Um so I'm not sure it's fun, Colin, but it's definitely an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, it it is a good one. And uh, so let's let's go with the quick, easy one. And who is a dependent? I mean, New Jersey's workers' compensation uh, defines a dependent as a decedent spouse and natural children under 18 years of age who are actually part of the decedent's household at the time of death. So before you even go any further... If you are a child of the decedent and or a spouse living with them at the time of the accident, you are presumed to be a dependent. And so that means that you that it would be the respondent's um, position to have to rebut that if they were going to challenge that. But it's an automatic presumption if they live with the depend if they live with the decedent, um, any children or the spouse, they are presumed to be a dependent. But so go ahead, Colin. So who else is? And so many other people that can be considered dependent under the statute are husband, wife, parents, step parents, grandparents, children, stepchildren, brothers, sisters, half siblings, nieces, and nephews. And uh, also, we obviously uh, families get uh, divorced. So if a couple is um, separated and uh, the decedent, the deceased spouse is considered a uh, has dependents, then they will. Uh, be considered dependents, uh, like child support agreements will come into this, like the case law we'll talk about will uh, show, they, the case law, unlike um, other cases where the courts cherry picked a really easy one, this one they picked some pretty crappy, uh, pa- pretty crappy parents who were not actually um, paying child support or anything like that, and they were still found uh, to be d- dependents. So I think it's good that the court actually did that properly because dependents are de- dependents are dependents i mean if if they're your kid just because they're not living with you the court did find that they are uh dependents and but i think what's important is that the court does put the burden on all of the you know the ones that are not specifically children living in the same household as the decedent they put the burden on them to prove that they were dependents Oh, absolutely. But as I mentioned, the case law is pretty clear that you can be you can have child uh, you can have a non uh, non custodial parent have a dependent because if there's an if there's an agreement and it's there's nothing to the contrary, the court's going to find that they are a dependent. The other little caveat to it is you're a dependent up to eighteen. However, it goes up to twenty three if you are in uh, college. You are still considered a dependent until twenty three. That's correct. And also, um, it can go beyond that if you can prove 
that, um, or the child can prove, the dependent can prove um, that they are incapacitated in some in some way. So mental illness, um, um, physical illness, something of that sort. The case law does show that those dependents um, can be dependents past the age of twenty three, even you know children at this point. And so the 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 one thing is to be able to file a dependency claim. Obviously, the person has to um, die. However, the second part of that is they have to show be able to show that the death was a result from the work accident, which is that that's then when the burden becomes very difficult. Um, which is why a lot of the times you'll see these cases section twenty versus um, settle as order approving settlements because there is some type of dis- um, discrepancy. Discrepancy, like you'll you'll see sometimes somebody will have a hand injury and they'll still file a dependency case. I mean, I think you, I think you have your easy cases. You know, your motor vehicle accidents, your your fatal accidents. You know, they at the time of the accident it caused the death. And there's obviously no question about those. Those are your simple ones. Those obviously are going to be dependency cases. Um, But something that I have actually seen recently um, that, well, not so recently, but within the past few years is um, COVID related deaths um, and dependencies claims being filed in connection with them. Have you seen any of those? I actually have one of them at the moment. I'll actually be arguing a motion on it next week. Um, but yeah, that, that's definitely it's definitely more common. The other thing is, just like a uh, work accident where you have two years to file the claim from the date of the accident, you you have two years to file a dependency claim too. The statute does not toll for minors. It is two it is two years from when they uh, from when they they knew or should have known that the death was related to the work. Uh, Work accident. And my argument is the date that it's two years from the date of the death because you knew when they you knew when they died and what they died from, and it's pretty easy to tell was it related to the work injury. Obviously, if it was a back surgery and they died of a heart attack, pretty clear. But if it was complications from a future surgery, maybe maybe that could be related. So it's funny. So I want to just go back to this COVID thing because I I had a case a couple of years ago where the decedent clearly passed away from COVID. The medical records supported it. Um, However, he didn't have any dependents. So there was nothing to get his family, but he lived with his parents. And so counsel was trying to prove that he was dependent uh, or that his parents were dependent upon him. But the evidence was not strong. And obviously it was section 20 for a very small amount, but what I found out and after digging around a little bit was that he what the parents weren't dependent on him. And in fact, the father actually worked with his son and they were both earning the same amount of money. And so maybe there was some sort of argument that the son was contributing to the household by purchasing groceries and um, helping pay for the, um, the bills and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, there was no real dependency there. But what counsel was trying to argue, and I think this is an interesting little spin on dependency is partial dependency. So maybe there's not whole dependency there, but partially there's some sort of dependency going on, which satisfies the statute. And this is how she was able to sort of get some section 20 money out of us. Have you seen any partial dependency arguments? 
I I have not personally, but that I mean that makes sense. Especially, um, it's easy to go the other way. Your 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 spouse dies, and you were relying on them, and you, or your 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 parent dies, and the children were relying on them. But you're talking going the opposite direction. You're going up, and I can see that argument. Um, I can see an argument for that because say your parents had to move in with you or parent, whichever one it was, had to move in with you for medical reasons and was wholly reliant on you. While it might not be directly within the statute, I could see a judge uh, knocking that up from a Section 20 basis saying, look, it's pretty clear they were reliant on this person. I mean, it's I I think that would be a much more evidence based argument needed you probably have to show a lot more you'd probably require a lot of a decent amount of testimony from that alleged dependent but i could definitely see the argument it's a perfect section 20 scenario because how do you really prove partial dependency i mean it's it's it ha- would have to be you you would need so much estimate so much um evidence so much testimony it would just be i don't know almost impossible but okay so let's take it let's take it back a step because i don't think we sort of explained what do you get out of dependency so first you establish who is a dependent um then they go ahead and file a dependency and if it is found to be related then what do they get they get 70% of the decedent's wages subject to the minimum and maximum. And that's it, 70%. And it is it is one, it is one fee and it goes across all dependents. So if there's 10 dependents, they all get up to a collective 70%. If there's one dependent, they get 70%. It's that's that's it. There's it took away any sort of graduating scale to you know for determining how many dependents there are. Right. And the only way that changes is so if say you have five dependents, when one of them ages out, then the four dependents will divide that same number. And then when that person ages out, the three dependents will and so on and so forth. Exactly. So the overall 70 percent never changes. Just who gets what may change. Right. And it. it it, it it like I said the, these are these are rare you don't see them and they they can be confusing I mean and they the the petitioner argument is usually a pulling it, attempting to pull at the heartstrings argument they're they they're they're not always clean cut and related and they're just trying and I mean there there is a benefit in the statute that it it used to be thirty five hundred dollars it's now um bumped up to five thousand which is for funeral expenses. And that's an argument we tend to make is like, look, okay, there's not really a uh, dependency claim here, but we'll give you the statutory number of 5000 and essentially pay for the funeral expenses. Um, that's one argument we have. But like it, it's it, – they, they – I mean I've made the argument in the past. Like I mentioned the tolling. I had a case at my old firm where – petitioners it was clear that the petitioner's son was a dependent but he filed his uh claim petition two months after the two-year statutory period and we we argued in front of the court the uh workers compensation judge said no the comp statute is clear two years statute of limitations we took it up to the appellate court the appellate court said yep it to, uh, to, uh, doesn't matter, um, unlike third-party claims where tolling doesn't begin or, or the statute is tolled until they're uh, 18, there is no tolling in the workers' compensation statute. It's a two-year statute of limitation. So, unfortunately, that kid was out of luck. And that, that's, that's a tough argument, even hearing from our side, because it's like, look, we have all the facts in the world, but at the same time, a, somebody lost somebody, and they were clearly dependent on them, and 
there's an issue. I totally agree that the, the death cases, they're tough because, you know, there are there's family members that lost somebody. And so the when when we say the tie always goes to the runner in death cases, it's it it always it's it's always there because you have that that sympathy, that empathy um, from the judge and they're going to want to give somebody something. So which is why Colin just mentioned they often section 20 um, because there's probably issues of causation and liability and the judges wants to get them something. So unfortunately, that's just the reality of it, which is why we try to work out these section 20s. But I don't think we we talked about. So when a spouse is getting um, dependency benefits what, when, when do they stop? Do they, do they continue forever? So they spousal benefits will actually continue until for their entire life and they will terminate. And Colin, correct me if I'm wrong, but they terminate upon a remarriage, correct? That is correct. And that, that, that is, um, there's, I don't remember the case off the top of my head, but there is a specific, uh, ruling on that because it, it, you're not then no essentially it's you're no longer dependent on your dis, your person because you have logically a new 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 spouse to take care of you or exactly. no longer have that dependency and like I, like I mentioned earlier about the the um step like step kit or, or non-custodial parents is where you you kind of see this a lot and the the court in Costa Hughes and Campari are the two cases in New Jersey on point in this. And um, in Campari, they basically held that a uh, as a matter of law, an infant child of a deceased father is entitled to the compensation due a person wholly dependent on the father, without regard to the amount of actual the amount actually expended by the father, so long as there's nothing appearing to the contrary. And I remember this case from when I did it. Basically, the guy had a court order saying he was supposed to pay X number in child support, never even paid it, and then died. The court still ruled that kid was a uh, a dependent, and I I think that was the right ruling because. Like they said, they said nothing appearing to the contrary. It wasn't like somebody came out of the woodwork and said, "Oh no, this is my son. I've been taking care of him." It it it's it was a pretty broad hearing, and a lot of times you see the the appellate courts take on cases that aren't necessarily that. Uh, they're they're very they're very um easy to decide, and this one was. I feel when you read it, it actually was a tough. Uh, tough thing because I understood the argument that he wasn't even paying the legally required amount. So how could you be dependent on that? But the court found that he was, even though he was not paying. I think too, that's where the heartstrings sort of come in. It's, you know, they want to, they want to give these kids something. Yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those, um, as we mentioned, you, you gotta, you gotta have, you gotta hope you have, a decent amount of facts um, in in favor. I mean, like I said, if it's a hand injury and we get these filed, it, it's very frustrating because you're, they're they're just looking for for something, and it, it it it's it's difficult. Like I said, it's it's it it's a sad thing because you're dealing with a death and. The COVID ones, I definitely see the the um, COVID ones, and I, like I said, that I think we're going to start seeing more of them as COVID becomes a little more relevant. What do you think? 
I, to, to be honest, I thought we were going to see way more COVID claims altogether than we actually did see. So I think I think they're done at this point. I mean, for for the most part, I haven't I haven't gotten a new one in probably over a year. And the only death one that I did get was the one where a petitioner or petitioner, the decedent was actually the son of the so-called dependents, his parents, and it didn't right. go very far. So it was the burden of the, you know, the burden was way too high for them to prove. And it's, you know, it was a very, very small section. It was nothing big, but something that I think that we should touch on, because we're talking about dependency, what happens when there are no dependents and there's, you know, now this work-related accident that results in a fatality and there's no dependence. So, so how does it operate for the for the adjuster? They get it in, and they say, okay, great. This person was receiving med and temp. Um, perhaps they were already receiving permanency. Now they're no longer living. What do you do in that scenario? And actually, I just did um, I just did an analysis for a client on this. So, if the petitioner's death was not a result of a work related accident, then the respondent would actually owe the remaining balance of petitioner's permanency award. And this is really this is important: the permanency award that has accrued since his passing. So, if they're on med and temp and no permanency has accrued, they get nothing. Though the estate gets nothing. There's and there's no dependents. There's there's nothing. Um, this would even be when I say petitioner's death was not a result of a work-related accident or if there are no dependents. So not related and or no dependents, they get nothing. If you are now in a situation where you're paying medical and temporary disability benefits, that has concluded and now their parties are on to permanency exams. I have gotten the argument before that, okay, well, there's this period of time from temp to, you know, three months down the road when they you know, went to their permanency exam, but maybe we didn't get the results back or maybe they didn't complete both of them. And now the argument is in, his estate is now entitled to that three months of accrued permanency. And if there was a permanency exam done, I always suggest they're correct. That time has accrued. There, there now is an opinion that their permanent disability was fixed and measurable. And now we owe that three months of permanent, uh, permanency that accrued to the estate. If there's no permanency evaluation, I would argue their condition ha was not fixed and measurable and there is no permanent disability. So nothing has accrued. How, would, how do you handle that, Colin? That, that's interesting. Um, I, my position is always, okay, the men in temp, I completely agree. There's no permanency. We're, we're done. Um, usually the, so, okay, we know that a perm award starts accruing from the, either the, the last date of temp or the date of the accident if no, no temp is, uh, paid. So yes, there is all of that accrual starting, basically starting from MMI till settlement, it's quote accruing. And logically, normally we, when we pay out an award of a hundred, I say awards 120 weeks and we settle it after a year, uh, from MMI, 52 weeks will be accrued and there'll be another 70 weeks left to be paid, give or take. Now that, that I agree, that accrual, if, assuming we settled it, that accrual should be paid. But if there's no settlement order, I just, I don't see the, um, I don't see why we would pay. I mean, I, I know we'll, I know we'll section it and get rid of it, hopefully for a nom for that $5,000, but I don't think there's a legitimate, there's a legitimate reason to pay. I mean, the judges will, again, like you said, the heartstrings 
and it's a sympathetic argument. But I, I personally, I, I, and that's part of the argument I'm making in my case is, look, it, it, there's there's nothing. I mean, there's there's no permanency. You okay? He died during treatment. Yes, well, I agree. It he died from the work related thing. However, there's all this other reasons why it's not a dependency claim. Yeah, and I think it's important just to remember that you need the causal relationship and the dependent to to sort of establish the the right or the standing to bring a dependency claim. Because another scenario would be, okay, it's found to be work related, but there's no dependence. So how does that operate? And I think Colin, you touched on that a little bit earlier, but respondent basically would owe the funeral expense and then um the medical and hospital services, if it is related, would have to be paid by the respondent. That would be the obligation of the respondent. But if there are no dependents, then all they would owe, again, is the same thing that they would owe if it wasn't work-related, any permanency that has accrued since their passing. Um, and how this really came up for me is we have a client that was paying permanent, permanent and total disability as in connection with like a 2000 work-related accident and they had been paying perm total for, I mean, gosh, probably about 20 years at this point. And then the petitioner, the, the, you know, the work, the worker that has been perm total for all these years, he dies and he's 81 when he dies. So we are presuming that he has no dependence, but even if he, even if he could prove dependence, he's having a hard time with his causal relationship argument. So there's two things going on there. There's, there's, we don't know that he has a living spouse, his children, we are, we presume are older than 23 and or no longer dependent since, you know, considering his age of 81 years, there's also, we got a hold of the death certificate and there's nothing on there to indicate that any of this was causally related. And now the daughter's, the daughter's been calling and basically saying, he, he may have passed um, in connection with the medication that he was on. But again, that's a very, very hard burden to overcome. That's, that's, that to me is a very difficult argument. So basically what he is entitled is any permanency that, was, that wasn't paid um, up until his death. And in fact, we found out that he was actually overpaid because they didn't know that he had passed. So he actually has about three weeks of overpayment. So we could potentially seek a credit for that. Right. And that, that's one area where I'm never seeking the credit. I'm sorry. I, I know we have the ability. I would never want to make that argument to a judge and say, hey, we overpaid a dead guy. <laughs> well, who's going to pay you back? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny. You said, oh, we presume an 81 year old doesn't have children. But I mean, it could be Al Pacino who just had a kid at 83. So, I mean, there's your dependent. But you're, you're right. And the, the biggest thing is when you get these dependency claims in, I would say 99% of the time we get them in, you get the claim petition. That's it. And we know very limited. So the, you want to request as many medical records. You want to request medical records from counsel. You want to request a death certificate, marriage certificate, um, court orders potentially if the pa uh, parents are div divorced and any other pleadings or things related to this because you there are – there are people that claim they're married, and then when you actually uh, break it down, you're, they're not actually legally married. They've just been together for 20 years, 30 years, and that that wouldn't be a dependent. They're not legally – I would argue they're not legally dependent. I'm sure there, there's probably something on that, but there's no marriage certificate. You're not, a, you're not a dependent in my eyes from a spousal side. And 
the death certificate can give you can give you a lot of information. The other defense we have is because there's usually such limited information on these cases or questionable stuff, counsel won't want to provide medical records or they'll they'll drag their feet or if there is a dependent, they don't want to get the estate documents because we can't proceed on a case until um and settle it unless until the decedent's family gets the proper estate documents and can step in as that person. So I just had a case dismissed where a petitioner died from an unrelated thing. Counsel spent six months trying to get the estate documents and finally couldn't oppose my motion. But he said, look, I gave them this much time if they don't answer. And the judge agreed to dismiss it. So we we have a lot of uh, defenses in this. It, it's It's a scary notion when it happens. But there, there's a lot. There's a lot of bur- there's a there's a good burden on the petitioner too because they do have to provide at least enough information to scare us into saying, "Oh, this is a dependent." And I feel like some of these, if they're not obvious, are probably going to go to trial if somebody really wants it, which is why we section 20, 20 these. And it, it might be a big section twenty number. Don't get me wrong; not a nominal value, but that's. That it's better than having somebody on the hook for 18, like a child who's two years old and on the hook through at least 18 and possibly 23 and maybe longer if they have a disability or something. And so you'd want to section that. And it's an area we, we don't see a ton of it. So it, it, it kind of, it's kind of foreign to us at times. Like I said, I've never had an order approving for a dependency claim. I don't know about you. Now, most of mine, I, I mean, actually, all of mine have been Section 20 out. And it's easy to find that Section 20 number. Um, and, you know, we've done it based on life expectancy of a spouse. Um, obviously, children are, are a little bit easier because, uh, you know, they get benefits up to age 18. The unfortunate thing that we do have to consider is if a child does um, pass away before age 18, which I don't even like saying, um, but, you know, that's always considered in our Section 20 number. But it's it's the risk of going to trial on the causation issue is detrimental to both parties. So you don't want to be stuck with those benefits forever. Um, and on the same hand, there's always a chance that the petitioner could lose. So so we sort of, you know, meet in the middle and figure out the numbers together, which never seems that difficult. And, and the other part that makes it a problem is, okay, if, if, it's a, if, it's a, if it's a married couple, then the spouse will testify for herself and potential children. When it gets questionable is it's a divorced family where there's clearly a dependent child, but the parent, the divorced parent who doesn't have a claim as a dependent then has to testify. And there's, it, it, it's, it's chaotic. And I mean, if, if somebody's sympathetic in the sense of judge, if there's enough evidence, the judge might find... It's it's a risk, so it's a it's a risk both ways. And then the other time is some parent, some parent, some people don't want to testify, and it, it hurts the petitioner side. It, and you basically have to have as much evidence as possible, and um, from the petitioner side. And we we don't see these a ton, which is why you kind of hear us kind of rambling, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> well, I thought you said this was the fun one, Colin. <laughs> it is fun because I liked. My, I, I got to reference Al Pacino's baby uh, courts actually doing the right thing and taking hard cases, unlike they do on the criminal side for, at the appellate level. Well, I think, okay, then I think it's, you know, like to sum it up, you not only for dependency claims, you have to have a work-related death 
and you have to have a dependent. If you don't have those two things, there's no dependency claim. And if there's no dependency claim, there's no dependency benefits. This is, it works. It operates the same way as a claim petition. You have to file the claim petition for your permanency benefits. Well, you have to file a dependency claim for your dependent benefits. And I recently just got that question. Um, you know, what do we do? The employee just passed away, fatal accident. What do we do? And I said, pay the medical expenses, pay the funeral expense, and then nothing. If you get no dependency claim, nothing. I I completely agree. I mean, like I said, I'll, um, usually there's two ways you'll get a dependency claim. You'll 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 know of the petitioner, and then you'll get it. You'll you'll know because of it. You'll have that claim petition, and a couple years later, you'll get a dependency claim petition. Other times, like a case I have where I'm, there's a lot of other facts in it that I don't want to get into. We received the, the, the dependency claim petition was the first. Uh, notice of injury or accident and that that makes it really challenging because at least with the dependency where you had a claim petition filed they treated and a couple years later they died we can make the the assumption pretty easily because we have all the medical records we authorize that treatment it's pretty clear but when you don't have the medical records and counsel is not necessarily being cooperative or uh, you can't get the estate documents it, cases they'll get drug along, and that's when we file those motions to dismisses, and those are some of the most successful motions to dismisses that we have. Totally agree, because it's not like you can have the decedent fill out a medical authorization to get the records. It's very difficult to get the records. Right, and that's why we uh, and always ask for death certificates. Always ask for marriage licenses, um, child support orders, all of that. And uh, we'd like to thank you again for joining us. For- this month's Chartwell Chronicles. And thank you again. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and look forward to the next uh, next one that'll drop will be uh, with someone else from another state in the uh, 38 jurisdictions that we have. So thank you again and stay tuned for the next episode of the Chartwell Chronicles.